new government regulations, which were created to protect employees, are actually hurting them. It's regulation after regulation. Until the government understands that they have to create an environment suitable for us to keep growing, we're going to stay in this recession a long time. The federal government has blocked efforts to expand the ride-sharing The owners say the restaurant has succumbed to the crush of government regulation. We have seen an unprecedented explosion of new regulatory $1.8 trillion. That's how much business and bus companies to close. I think there are outdated regulations that need to be changed. There is red tape that needs to be cut. The regulations are... There's a regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep... Is this really the best we can do? This is Free Lunch, the podcast of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project. All expressions of opinion on this podcast are those of the speakers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Federalist Society's second Teleform conference call, our first substantive Teleform for the Regulatory Transparency Project. If you have not done so yet, I invite you to visit our website at regproject.org. REGproject.org, where you can, among other things, download and listen to our inaugural free launch podcast explaining the what and the why of the RTP. This call centers around the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC's, increased use of administrative proceedings. My name is Devin Westhill. I'm the director of the RTP and the host of the free launch podcast. If you're new to the Federalist Society programs, you should know that the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy initiatives, and therefore, all expressions of opinion on this call and all free lunch podcasts are those of the featured speakers. Today's featured speakers are Mike Kelly and Eric Wanger. Mike is a partner in the D.C. office of Hogan Lovells and is a member of the RTP's Agency Enforcement and Coercion Working Group. Mike is an expert in agency administrative proceedings and is a contributor to a paper written on this topic. That paper and Mike's full bio can be found on our website at regproject.org. Eric is the founder of Wenger Investment Management, which in 2010 was a multifamily office, employed 11 people, released articles on finance, and promoted shareholder rights. Wenger Investment Management has since shuttered following administrative proceedings instituted against it by the SEC. Eric is now known as the $2,200 man and blogs about his story at 2200dollarman.org, 2200dollarman.org. I'll turn it over to Mike to get us started. After opening remarks from Mike and Eric, we'll want to hear from our audience, so we'll take your questions for the remainder of the call, so please be thinking about that. Okay, let's get started. Mike, you've got the baton. Great. Thanks, Devin. Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning, uh, depending on where you happen to be. I thought I'd start today's discussion uh, with a hypothetical. Imagine for a moment that you and I have a dispute, and I have threatened to file a complaint against you. And I say that I'm going to file it not in a federal court or in a state court, but rather in a court that I've created with judges that I've appointed and rules that I have issued, rules which which generally favor me and, and don't favor you. Uh, you would have no right to a jury, and at the end of the process, if you didn't like the ruling that the administrative law judge that I appointed uh, provided, uh, you would have the right to appeal that decision, but you would be appealing the decision to me, um, and then I would decide whether your defenses have any merit. And then if you're unhappy with what I decide, then you could appeal it to a federal appellate court, which... Um, could only overturn my finding if it found uh, that there was not substantial evidence supporting my position. I think we would probably all agree that's a pretty terrible system uh, with unfairness baked in uh, at every step of the way, and I don't think it's a system that anyone would necessarily design if you were thinking, well, what's the fairest forum that that we could possibly create to resolve um, disputes like this? And you might say, well, that's just a silly hypothetical that has no chance of ever becoming reality except for the fact that if you substitute me out of the equation and you put the SEC or another um, administrative agency into it, it quickly turns from being a story about a a ridiculous hypothetical to being reality. Because in contrast to me, the Congress has given and has authorized the SEC uh, to appoint administrative law judges and to hold administrative proceedings about um, concerns or complaints that the agency has. And over time, Congress has expanded the types of matters um, that can be brought in administrative agencies. The Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed in 2010, was one in which Congress said to the SEC that the SEC is allowed to bring actions for monetary penalties 
against not just people that are registered with the SEC or, or regulated by the SEC, but also just about anybody um, in the United States who the SEC believes has violated the securities laws, the SEC can bring an administrative action instead of proceeding in a federal district court. So what happens in the SEC, say, for instance, they, they believe that you've committed insider trading. They can file what's called an order instituting proceedings, essentially a complaint, and the case is assigned to um, an administrative law judge. There are five administrative law judges um, who are hired by the SEC. That administrative law judge um, would have the responsibility of trying to process your case through, and depending on the complexity, it can be you know, 30 or 75 or 120 days until a decision is rendered. And it's, it's meant to be done on an expedited basis. So you wouldn't have the same right to obtain evidence that you would have in a federal court. Um, depending on the complexity of the case, you might not have the opportunity for any depositions. Um, at most, you might have the opportunity for three depositions in contrast to federal court where you would obviously have much more. Um, you wouldn't have the right to a jury. The case would be decided by the SEC administrative law judge. Um, and generally speaking, you would have limited ability to get evidence from third parties. And at the end of the, the time period after the administrative law judge issues an initial decision, uh, you could appeal that to the full commission itself, and it would review everything um, anew, although it would give some deference to the administrative law judge's determinations about credibility. And the SEC would then render a decision about you, as to whether it, it thinks that you violated um, any of the provisions or not. And then you would then have the right to a, appeal to a federal appellate court. So th this has been going on for a long time. Well, why does it seem like it's more of a controversy now? Why do we see in the newspapers a number of articles about challenges to the use of SEC administrative law judges? Well, I think a couple factors are at play. One, I think people are starting to realize how much the SEC's power to bring these proceedings has been expanded um, administratively. And the second thing is back in 2012, 2013, the SEC did have some high-profile losses um, in federal district courts, one of which um, was the Dallas Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban. And after that, whether coincidental or not, um, the SEC's director of enforcement, who was then Andrew Ceresny, suggested the SEC would start bringing more cases administratively and fewer cases in district courts. And when you combine the expanded power as well as the perception, whether it was fair or not, that the SEC was trying to bring more cases administratively, fewer cases in, in district courts, judges and the, the securities bar became concerned. Now, the SEC responded to those concerns in a couple of ways, one of which is they said, well, look, it's a much more efficient process for us to bring these administratively. We get faster decisions than we would get at federal courts, and we have specialized fact finders in the administrative proceedings that we don't have. Um, in federal court, um, and their their hope was is to say, well, you know, there's a good you should trust us to bring the case in the right form, and administratively or in federal court, we still bring them in both. The other thing the SEC did to try to respond to the criticisms was to say, well, let's amend our rules of practice, and we'll make this look a little bit more like federal court. We'll we'll have longer timelines to decide our cases. We'll give you the right to notice a few depositions, whereas before you might not have had any, and we'll we'll maybe up the standards just a little bit in terms of what kind of evidence is allowed in. Hearsay is one of the big big touch points. Um, hearsay obviously is evidence in which someone doesn't have direct knowledge, but they're repeating what they heard somebody else say. And even under the new rules, that kind of evidence, which may not be admissible in federal court, can be admissible in administrative proceedings. Um, and so you might find yourself being accused of something based on what somebody else heard that somebody else said. And so that's the kind of issue that's always con concerned the defense bar. And the SEC hoped with making these changes that might quell some of the concerns that people had about the increased use of administrative proceedings. I, I don't think it has, and I don't think it has for really for two reasons, one of which is you know, there have been a series of court challenges that are making their way through the appellate courts. But these are very narrow challenges. What the challenge is is that the way that these administrative law judges have been appointed violates the appointment clause of Article II of the Constitution. And what that article states is that if you have someone who's in, called an inferior officer, they have to be appointed by either the president, the courts of law, or the heads of departments. And it's undisputed that these administrative law judges haven't been appointed by 
any of those three entities. For the head of the department to appoint an SEC administrative law judge, you'd have to have the full commission vote and appoint the person, and that hasn't happened. And so the challenge is if, if these ALJs were not appointed in accordance with the Constitution, then any proceeding that they presided over becomes invalidated. And so that's a, a question the Tenth Circuit took up and said, after hearing this argument, the Tenth Circuit said, well, we think that's right. And um, they did exactly that. And then meanwhile, in the D.C. Circuit, the D.C. Circuit heard the same arguments and initially said, well, we don't think that's right. We think that these administrative law judges aren't inferior officers covered by the Constitution. We think they're just employees. And if they're employees, then it doesn't matter who in the agency hires them. It doesn't have to be done by the head of the department. So we think ultimately this is an issue the Supreme Court's going to take up and it will get a lot of headlines. Um, but ultimately, over the long term, this won't answer the fundamental question, which is, is it fair to bring these administrative law proceedings before the SEC and not bring charges in, in the federal court? And so you may ask, well, why should we be worried about a lack of fairness? I presume that the administrative law judges are professional and doing their best and trying to be fair, even though they've been hired by the SEC. I think that there are two reasons why we should be concerned about this, one of which is in a Wall Street Journal article in 2015, there were some allegations by a former SEC administrative law judge who believed that there was a bias in the decision-making process. And she made these publicly, and that's obviously caused a lot of consternation for a lot of people. And what happened is the SEC, Mary Jo White, who was the chair of the SEC at the time, directed the inspector general to issue, to investigate this and to issue a report, which the inspector general did after a few months. And after a few months, they interviewed all the, all five administrative law judges, other folks that worked with the administrative law judges went through their emails and issued a report, which included there really wasn't any evidence to support the allegations, although the inspector general acknowledged that the former SEC ALJ who had met with them had met with them and, and repeated what she had told the Wall Street Journal. And it's, I think, a tough thing for a lot of folks, you know, to think, well, if I'm going to be judged by these people, and meanwhile, there are these allegations that a former SEC ALJ has made, it's, it's tough for me to be comfortable with the result, even if it's otherwise a fair process. But the other reason I think we should be worried is the problem of unconscious bias. If you're an employee of the SEC for 20 years, and you serve as an administrative law judge during that time, it's just a matter of human nature that you're naturally going to associate with both the commission as well as um, the mission of the commission, which is to protect investors. And I don't, I'm not aware of the, the, the founding fathers talking about unconscious bias when they were you know, formulating the Constitution. But one of the things that was really, you know, really brilliant of the founding fathers was to put the judiciary in an independent third branch. And they did it for a reason, which is that there is the human nature that naturally, if you're within an agency, you are going to begin to identify with them, especially if you're there for you know 20 years, 10 years, a substantial period of time. And so one of the, the, the ironies about all of this is that you know a lot of the attention has been focused on the SEC. Why don't you bring more cases in district court instead of administratively? But the real question is for Congress. Has Congress found the right balance between fairness to the parties as well as efficiency? And I think. Many people, and I would include myself in the category, are concerned that the current balance that's been struck by Congress puts more emphasis on efficiency, on getting the, the procedures done and decided, and not as much emphasis as they should have on the fairness of, of the whole thing. And that's not to say that there shouldn't be any administrative law judges or they shouldn't decide any, any issues, um, but has Congress given the SEC too much power to decide too many issues in the administrative proceedings that that really should be brought in front of the independent judiciary of the, of the third uh, branch of our government. So that is a quick overview of, I think, the subject and why we should be concerned about this and why we should be having a conversation about this. When the Dodd-Frank Act was passed in 2010, there wasn't much conversation about, is this the right thing to do to expand um, the powers being given to the SEC, or should we still make a lot of these, these actions go through federal district court. So that's a brief overview, but I, I, I want to get to Eric because obviously it's very different when you're living the experience and you're not just, you know, talking about it. And I think Eric's experience, you know, really brings to light some of the, 
the fairness issues that we should all worry about, whether you're a part of an SEC administrative proceeding or not. So with that, let me turn it over to Eric. Hello, everyone. My name is Eric Anger. I'm from Chicago. Um, let me just get this out of the way, uh, right away. I am blogging frequently about these issues. The website is uh, 2200-D-O-L-L-A-R-M-A-N.org, $2200-man.org. Uh, on that website, you can read about my legal history in detail. You can read the amendments to the 1933 Act. We utterly failed to try to bring to the attention of the United States Congress. You can bring blog issues, and you can even read some comments from people about my story. Um, having said that, I will begin. Thank you. I, I've been living this now for seven years. And the first thing that I will say is that whatever legal rights you believe that I have to go to, uh, I will just tell you, I've spent the last seven years fighting for the right to defend myself in front of a real judge in a real courtroom. And for seven years now, I have been prevented from the right to defend myself in a real court. Um, my story was I was a shareholder activist. In the 2000s, I found a small company in California, a small tech company. It doesn't really matter who they were or what they were doing, but it's all on, it's all on the site if you care. Um, they were playing games with the shareholders' money. Uh, but I went in really originally thinking that they were going to be an excellent economic opportunity. They had a $25 million micro-cap um, valuation, stock market valuation on NASDAQ, $10 million of that was in cash. Seemed like a very easy turnaround play. And over a period of three or five years, uh, the group that I controlled, the fund that I controlled, became the largest shareholder in the company, owning 14.5% at one point. But at one point or another, it became clear that the company was neither going to give its money, you know, give all the cash back to the shareholders, nor invested in growth projects. They were just simply going to spend it on their own inflated salaries and maintaining a, a, a vanity NASDAQ listing, which cost over a million dollars a year for a company with $5 million in revenues. Um, so I found myself crossing swords. I was actually on the board. Um, I found myself crossing swords with these people. Next thing I know, I'm in a battle of words. Next thing I know, Wilson Sign Senior, their law firm, is literally writing press releases for them to publish about what a what a bad guy I am. Really cleverly written press releases, not accusing me of breaking any laws, yet making me look like uh, you know Ponzi and Madoff had a baby or something like that. Um, the long and short of it is, next thing I knew, I found myself under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Well, you have to understand that when the Securities and Exchange Commission investigates you, you get a subpoena. And that subpoena simply says, turn over all of your documents that are or might be related to the following topics. And, you know, we'll get back to you. They don't tell you what they think you did. They don't tell you why they think you did it. They don't tell you who is accusing you of anything. They just simply say, we're going to open up a fishing expedition and a witch hunt. And so for the next three years, I kid you not, three years, I was under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission. At one point, I had uh, probably two full-time people in a company of 11 people working to meet their requests. And at the end of a three-year investigation, they accused me of uh, window dressing. Once again, this is all on me. Uh, website. They accused me of trading uh, in a manner that overbilled my clients $2,200 in the aggregate over a 33-month period. Just so you understand, that's about $1.60 per client per month during 33 months. They also accused me of filing some forms late, and then they also accused me of not properly disclosing a uh, a loan from my business, from my fund of the business, which although a little distasteful, is completely legal and completely paid back with interest. And nobody could believe 
how small this was. $2,269.71, including interest. And let me tell you, that was, that was after a three-year investigation. They had three years to find more than that. And by the way, just in my own, just so you understand, nobody accused me of raising the price of stocks and then selling them and putting that money in my pocket because we never sold any stocks. Nobody accused me of, um, you know, running up the stock so somebody else could sell it and make a profit. Nobody ever accused me of putting a dime of this in my pocket. This was a crime against the market. This was a crime against, you know, a theoretical abstract victim called the market and was done without ever selling anything, and nobody ever accused me of lining my own pocket in any way. Having said that, they demanded that I, you know, they, they launched an administrative proceeding against me. And I said, okay, $2,200, I'm going to fight this. Well, I will tell you as a practical matter, when they realized that I was going to defend myself in a hearing, then they decided they were going to end me. And at that point, I became some kind of example, and they were going to make road pizza out of me. The interesting thing is, everybody says, well, why didn't you settle? And the answer is, well, I did attempt to settle very much. I, um, uh, I said I would settle, but they were, what they were demanding was that I take a timeout from the industry. And I was an entrepreneur. I was running a business. I was actually paying for the right to work. If I wasn't allowed to put money into the business, the business couldn't make payroll. So the idea that I would have to be agreed to not be able to associate with my own business um, meant the end of my fun, and ultimately it did. Um, so anyway, I will try to speed up. I never wanted to try to get my comments into 10 minutes. I'm already six minutes into it. Um, having said that, I said I'm going to fight you. But we found what we found was that the attorney who was bringing the charges against me was working hand in glove with the judge who worked for the SEC. My only right to appeal was the SEC. They started calling my witnesses and saying, Wanger's under investigation. Next thing I know, our clients start firing me, and I don't know why. It took me a while to figure out why my clients were all firing me. Turned out the SEC was calling them. These were my potential, these were my clients. And my fact witnesses, and under quote in under the veil of quote investigation, the SEC was contacting them all. I then read an expert witness report basically saying I was somewhere between you know, Madoff and Ponzi, and so I said, Well, I'll get my own expert witness. Well, the expert witness I found is an old law professor of mine, Joe Grunfest, who used to be an SEC commissioner. He was so outraged by what they were doing to me, a friend and one of his former students, he wrote an expert witness report pro bono and agreed to be my expert witness. Well, next thing I know, the ALJ says that he's not allowed to testify. In other words, the SEC is allowed to present an expert witness, but I'm not allowed to present an expert witness because they don't want to be lectured by a law professor. That's literally their words. They were unwilling to be lectured by a law professor. And it kept going. So now the SEC talks to all my witnesses. I was never at any point allowed to know what, what, what those witnesses said. Can you imagine a trial? You're fighting for your life, and the other side's allowed to, allowed to bring evidence, uh, bring evidence that you can't see, evidence that you can't disprove because you're not allowed to know what it is. I wasn't allowed to bring an expert witness. Uh, at one point, they went beyond a time limit called 929U in Dodd Frank, which says that unless you bring your case within 180 days after a Wells notice, you're not allowed to bring it. Uh, well, they said, no, Wenger's case is complex, and we, we, we're going to use the complexity exception to that rule. Well, my entire case boiled down to 15 trades, and it was so simple that they didn't need to be lectured by a law professor, but somehow it was so complex that they were able to own the statute of limitation in Dodd-Frank, and it kept going. At one point, I was interviewed under oath for 20 hours on three separate occasions. And then they denied me access to the transcript of my own words. And it just kept going. So um, 
I'm going to go over time. I apologize. There's there's too much material. I'll try to I'll try to get to it. But the bottom the bottom line is that my lawyer took me out for drinks. I mean, he literally bought me intoxicating liquors and said, Eric, you're going to lose if we go to a hearing. We have no experts. They've talked to all of your witnesses, most of whom have now refused to testify. This included some of my employees who were in the room when all of my supposed bad acts took place. He said, you're going to have to settle because if we go to a hearing, not only are you going to lose, but you're going to get a formal you know, judicial loss on your record. If you settle, you will neither be confirming nor denying nor agreeing or disagreeing that you did any of these bad acts. The SEC will be free of any obligation to prove that you did anything wrong. So you will have to take a timeout. You know, you have to disgorge $2,200, $69.71 of ill-gotten gains, pay a $75,000 penalty, which still staggers the mind. Um, but, but you know, that, you know, you haven't admitted to doing anything wrong. They haven't proven you've done anything wrong. And you'll be back in business in a year. Well, fast forward, fast forward. That 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 settlement should have ended four years ago. That was a 2012 to 2013 settlement. Now I wake up. You know what I actually got was not a suspension. What I got was what they called a bar with the right to reapply. Well, their Kafka as in their Kafka as Humpty Dumpty world, which I've come to call the SEC's in-house funhouse the Hall of Mirrors, the Costa Nightmare. I am now told in 27 that my application for reapplication that, would, that should have been a no-brainer four years ago will not be accepted because I have failed to demonstrate how my readmission to the securities industry is in the interest of public policy. Quote. And I defy anyone on this call to give me a well-articulated definition of what it would take for me to prove that my readmission to the securities industry is in the interest of public policy. In fact, I defy anybody in this room to tell me how their own job proves to me that their own job is in the interest of public policy, no matter what field they're in, no matter what they do for a living. So here it is now, 2017. I am not allowed to, to hold any form of securities registration but it goes way beyond that. I'm not, a, I'm not even allowed to manage money privately. Because remember, Dodd-Frank said that the SEC doesn't have mere jurisdiction over people that they regulate anymore. They have, they have jurisdiction over everybody, registered or unregistered or whatever. And in addition to that, I still haven't exhausted my administrative remedies. One of the other great legal fictions of this whole process, which is that after seven years since I started this process, it, you know, I'm skipping a lot of material. They put me back under investigation in 2014 just to make the point that they had their eyes on me. And in fact, they called my 80-year-old mother and made her cry. That one was in the New York Times article, um, which I hope somebody will make a reference to, by the way, before the call ends. Um, and then I was in investigation in 2016 again because somebody didn't want to pay me money they owed me, and rather than pay me the money they owed me and go to arbitration, they called the SEC. So the SEC put me on investigation, and the arbitrator quit. And that cost me $125,000. And they never even accused me of anything. After eight months, they simply said, well, you know, if you agree, you know, just sign a piece of paper that said you didn't do anything wrong, we'll go away. And I said, I did. And that cost me $125,000, not including legal fees. So here I am in 2017, and I am still collaterally barred. You know, I'll ask Mike to explain what collateral, the collateral bar is. But despite all of the supposed due process remedies with respect to the collateral bar, I'm still, so I, at this point, I'm not allowed to manage money. I'm not allowed to manage private money. And I'm collaterally barred from activities that are hard-pressed. The things I'm barred from doing things I never did or never even contemplated doing. And here it is in 2017, the punchline to the joke is I am still fighting for my right to get in front of a real judge in a real courtroom, somebody who will require the SEC to bring real evidence. Uh, and I will just say one more thing, 
which is for the last four years, right up until the time Gretchen Morganson started investigating my story, FINRA had me listed as permanently barred. Permanent. We went to FINRA and we said, please explain to us how a one-year, involuntary one-year suspension with the right to reapply is a permanent bar. They went into full-on Humpty Dumpty Kafka mode and said, well, all bars are permanent until proved otherwise, and blah, blah, blah. And we said, but look, if you have me listed as permanent, permanently barred, you guarantee that I can never get access to the industry. I am so radioactive and so polluted in the eyes of anybody in the industry or anywhere else. Frankly, on the court of Google, I was unemployable anywhere because who wants to hire somebody who's such a bad person that they were permanently barred? It basically ended my career in everything, not merely in finance. And for four years, they told my lawyer to go pound sand. They, they, there was never any process, never any procedure. When we asked to see the documentation about why I was permanently barred, they said, no, you can't see that. You, you know, we, we don't have to show that to you. And we said, so you can just merely assert it. And they said, yes, we can. And then this is the best part of all. They said, well, Lander should have thought of this before he voluntarily admitted that he intentionally committed fraud. And we said, what are you talking about? That, that every word in that sentence is wrong. Wenger didn't, never did any of those things. And, you know, and, and that's the problem, right? Is that now the SEC and FINRA has been doing this process so long that they're repeating their own allegations as if they were true. They are now ascribing factual truth basis to their own unproven, unadmitted allegations, and they've been doing this so long, and I have no right to challenge this in federal court. And I'm still fighting for this, quote, exhaustion of administrative remedies. Right now, we are preparing a whole series of lawsuits against a variety of parties, but I still have no right to bring them because it's only been seven years. So if you can tell me how this right to appeal that Congress imagined somehow represents due process in anything other than a legal textbook, I'd love to hear about it. And if you can tell me how the only, the only courts, the only judge, the only prosecutor, the only appellate body I've had access to for seven years are the same people that keep the fine, use the fine to bring other cases, use the fines to, sub, to subsidize not only the SEC but other agencies as well, and by the way, and put the surplus into the U.S. Treasury, giving the United States Congress the ability to say, look how tough on crime we are. Um, and then I'll ask you one more question before I go silent, which is, and find me one other, other than Madoff himself, name one significant bad guy who went to jail as a result of the Great Recession or Dodd-Frank or any of these other things. I will tell you that when the SEC goes to Chase or Wells or J.P. Morgan or Bank of America or any of these places, they will say the following. They will say, if you give us 5 or $10 billion with a B of your shareholders' money, we won't bring charges against any of your senior people. And the SEC has been able to raise hundreds of billions of dollars with a B over the last decade. And I, you know, here's a question for you. I can't prove this, but... And ask yourself, if I had a couple billion dollars of shareholders' money, do you think I'd be the $2,200 man? Sorry to go over time, but uh, um, love to hear your comments and questions. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Eric. Um, we're going to go to audience questions now. Uh, in a moment, everyone on the call will hear a prompt indicating that the floor mode has been turned on. After that, to request the floor, enter star, then pound. When we get to your request, you'll hear a prompt, and then you may ask your question. We'll answer questions in the order in which they're received. Again, to ask a question, please enter star, then pound on your telephone keypad. I'll take a second now to ask a couple follow-up questions of Mike and Eric. Uh, Eric, you've, you've got a compelling story, <clears throat> and it sounds like it's a great example of the basic unfairness that Mike was talking about. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting to people, though, is 
the collateral damage that this has caused. Um, you've, you've clearly been, been harmed here, but what about the collateral damage? You had a business at one time, 11 employees, et cetera, et cetera. What happened to your employees? What about the collateral damage here? Well, um, the SEC put me out of business. Uh, I had to what, – what, what actually happened was I had just opened my third office. You know, my third multi, – in a multifamily office, we don't trade securities. We don't even custody securities. We're essentially – we take care of families. We take care of elderly people. Some of our clients were 90. The SEC said, well, I don't care if Langer firewalled his ownership and his control over this business. We're going to audit you guys. And they basically put auditors full-time on Wenger Omni Wealth, which is the name of that business, with instructions essentially to never leave. They never accused Wenger Omni Wealth of anything. There was never any single, any accusation that we had done anything wrong at all at any time whatsoever. Yet those auditors never left. And finally, the employees started quitting. The employees got the memo. The employees got the message. They said, this is never going to end until this company is over. Langer Omni Wealth, we had $300 million. We were growing about $100 million a year in assets under advisement. We just opened our third office. And once again, under the, under the rubric of auditing or investigation, you know, once again, one, one of the other great legal fictions of American jurisprudence is that punishment, is that process is not punishment. Investigation is not punishment. I mean, that's one of the great fallacies. You know, that's one of the great elephant-sized loopholes that these regulators jump through. Um, next thing I know, I had, next thing I know, I wasn't allowed, by the way, I wasn't allowed to go into my own office. I literally was paying rent for a building that I wasn't allowed to go into because the SEC said I wasn't allowed to go into my own office. I had to pay the rent, I had to write the payroll checks, and I wasn't allowed to show up. And so the employees started quitting when the SEC wouldn't leave. And next thing I knew, I had a business that I wasn't allowed to run, clients I wasn't allowed to talk to, and nobody to service them. One law firm argued that, you know, with very minimal growth assumptions, you know, that, that, that business would have been worth between 5 and $10 million right now. So, you know, that was a great business, and it was growing. So, yeah, the, the collateral damage to me just in that direct damage was about $7, $8 million. And that doesn't, that doesn't even include losing in the court of Google because I can explain, I can tell you right now that whenever the SEC publishes anything, it automatically becomes the number one returned search item in Google no matter what else is there. Uh, and... Nobody will hire you to do anything ever again. You can call a white-collar criminal on Google, especially when there's no narrative to contradict it. Thank God the New York Times stepped in. Um, Eric, this is Mike. Uh, just a, a quick question for you. If you had to do it over again, would you have gone through the administrative law hearing instead of settling it? Would you do anything different than, than, than the, the, the only? The, there's only two things that there's only two things that I could have done differently. The first one is I voluntarily registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. I should not have done that because fundamentally these people are lazy, and they didn't actually accuse me of anything that I didn't self-report. Every single accusation they made against me was something that I self-reported after I had already internally fixed it. By the time you have been investigated, you have to understand the investigation itself ends your business, right? I mean, these people call your clients. You know, I was running a little fund at that time. I lost all of my clients. The SEC calls your clients saying, Wanger's under investigation. I guarantee you, your clients will quit. So I appreciate your question, but it's a theoretical question because they have already ended you by the time you have to make that choice. Had I known that when I settled for one year with the right to reapply, they actually meant a permanent bar, obviously I wouldn't have entered into that contract voluntarily. Had I known that my when I use the words, you know, neither admit nor deny any anything they were alleging, that they were going to interpret that as a voluntarily admission 
that I intentionally committed fraud, yeah, I guarantee you I would have gone to a hearing. But the problem is, without witnesses, without an expert witness, with Without without subpoena, they literally denied us certain subpoenas. Without the ability to see testimony or my own testimony, without the ability to cross-examine witnesses, what is a hearing? I mean, the only reason I signed this document is because I was drunk. My lawyer made sure. And, you know, it, it is only a legal right in a textbook. If you've lived it, you can't, you know, have you read the trial by Franz Kafka? It's like that. It really is. In fact, the subtitle in my book is going to be, you know you're really screwed when your shrink tells you to reread Solzhenitsyn. Thanks, Eric, and and thanks, Mike, for the follow-up question. Uh, I think now we should go to our first question. For anyone else who has questions, uh, remember that you can request the floor by entering star and then pound. Let's go to the first question. Once you hear the prompt, you can ask your question. Hi, Eric. It's Matt Nickerson in Chicago. I'm coming in late here, so forgive me if I go over old ground. But for those of us not in finance, your arguments with the SEC, how does that apply to the broader world? I'm thinking of due process. Um, does your your arguments and your problems, does that have any uh, implications for the rest of us who are just concerned about like the individual rights and due process? That, thank you for the question. It sounds like a question uh, for, for Eric and Mike. Uh, so... Um, Eric, it was directed at you. Okay, well, well, thanks for the question. Yeah, this is a really big one because, you know, at the end of the day, I was a rich white money manager, and I guarantee you that doesn't generate a lot of sympathy, especially in today's world, so, you know, civil rights violations or not. But the Administrative Procedures Act that Congress used, that Congress uses kind of to, quote, guarantee the due process rights, you know, look, Google Google a list of federal agencies sometimes. I mean, this project of the Federalist Society could not be more relevant. You cannot list, you cannot make a list of all the departments and, and uh, agencies and quasi-agencies and independent regulatory agencies of the United States federal government. It won't even fit on one page. I don't even know if it'll fit on two pages. Um, and each and every one of these eight regulatory bodies has power over you. You know, immigration, pollution, tax, skills. There isn't a even you know when when you go to visit your aunt on Southwest Airlines, your civil rights have been determined by a group of people that you didn't elect and didn't vote for, and probably don't even have to show you the results of their legal deliberations. I mean. The, the, the American, the, the whole concept of due process and equal protection that we learned about in seventh grade, you know, it just ain't there in the real world because real Americans don't go up in front of judges with the federal rules of evidence and the federal rules of civil procedure. They go to some ALJ who basically gets to make the rules, judge, jury, and executioner. Let me add a little bit to the question. I think a lot of of what Eric has experienced, you know, sort of illustrates the due process questions. You know, one of the big questions is if you are in federal court, you get more rights than you would get in an administrative proceeding. You know, the right to an independent decision maker is is a hugely important right, and it kind of can color a whole proceeding. The right to have equal access to evidence, to be able to subpoena people, to go out and be able to make your case and make your defense, that goes really to the heart of what due process is supposed to prevent. And I think that's one of the, the difficult balancing acts that Congress has to have here is it, it's not just a question of do you have a constitutional right, but do you have a fair right to contest allegations that someone makes against you? And Oftentimes, you know, government agencies, as trying as they are in good faith, are, view things through a certain lens. And oftentimes, that's only half the story. And what you need is the right to be able to go out and get evidence to tell the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, um, and to, to make that case to someone who isn't an employee of the agency, to an independent person who doesn't have longstanding ties. I mean, I think all of those issues go right to the heart of, of the due process that you mentioned. Could I say yes, Mike? Can I can I add to what you just made? I agree sure. with everything you just said a thousand percent. 
in addition to that, though, let me give you, give you an anecdote, which is um, that here I am right now, seven years into this, waiting for a final judgment on whether or not I can re-enter the American economy, the most important hearing of my entire life. And neither me nor my attorney are going to be there. It's an ex parte proceeding. The same people that, and by the way, nobody has ever accused me of a crime. That's one thing that's really important. I have never even once by anybody ever been accused of a crime ever. So this all happened to me under some weird civil thing that nobody can quite wrap their arms around. So I've never been accused of a crime, yet my entire right to participate in the American economy was trashed. And the hearing to go over that, which is now, I've been waiting for that hearing now for more than a year, by the way. Neither me nor my lawyer will be invited to attend, and anything that we have prepared will be put as an addendum to a memo prepared by the people who made it their business to destroy me. And that's what passes for due process on this regime. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Mike. Uh, caller, I hope that answered your question. Um, I'd like to make an announcement in between questions here, uh, but I'll remind everyone on the call that if you do have a question, you can request the floor by entering star and then pound. Um, my announcement is that the next free lunch podcast teleform conference call will be on Thursday, July 13th at 1230 p.m. We'll discuss the innovative startup company Flight Now, which National Law Journal described as Uber of the Sky. The call will feature co-founder of Flight Now, Alan Guichard, and John Riches, the director of National Litigation and General Counsel at Goldwater Institute, who is counsel of record in Flight Now's legal battle with the Federal Aviation Administration. You don't want to miss this one, so mark your calendars now. That's Thursday, July 13th at 1230 p.m. Uh, if you have a question, uh, uh, you uh, just enter star and then pound. I'll take this opportunity to uh, ask a question myself. Um, Mike, is this a partisan issue? No, I, I think it's not a partisan issue. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, this can happen to you. And the types of issues that we're talking about, fairness versus efficiency, you don't have to be a, you know, a member of one party to come down on one side or another. I think it's issues that should concern everybody. And I know it's difficult today. Everything seems like it's phrased in terms of very partisan issues. But you can have people on both sides of the aisle that, that can become involved in these kind of proceedings. And then once they do, they, they see the unfairness, which really sort of transcends party lines. You know, government agencies are given a lot of discretion. And, you know, as, as, as Eric mentioned, just the ability to conduct an investigation can impose great practical costs. And I think oftentimes people don't see that until they actually become involved. And then at that point, you know, your party affiliations or your general outlook on life, you, you'll see that the fairness questions are things that bother people, you know, that, that they think that these important questions shouldn't be decided in the way that they're being decided now. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent. And uh, I would just add to that, for example, um, you, know, it's, you know, despite the fact that it was probably, I was the second smallest case in the history of the SEC Enforcement Division that we know about, I got their worst civil penalty, I think. Nobody's going to have any sympathy for that because, you know, I don't come from a sympathetic cohort. The people on the far right have a tendency to support more abstract due process rights, more abstract equal protection rights. But, but you can jump to the other side of the APA, the administrative branch, and talk about immigration rights or the right against police brutality or the right against... Um, you know, or, you know, or the right, yeah, or the right against certain kinds of uh, deprivations done against, you know, vulnerable and the poor. And people on the far left are making exactly the same claims. So I agree totally. The, the, what's really happened here is Congress offloaded a lot of rulemaking and lawmaking out of the judiciary, and then in a sense that's far from entirely silly, the judiciary offloaded it under the administration branch. And you know, if you remember Dodd-Frank, one of the things they had to do with that, they, they, you know, they, had, they, they forced the regulators to literally write hundreds of rules and then enforce them. And the Thanks, people Eric. that wrote the rules got to keep the penalties. Thanks, Eric. Uh, thanks, Mike. 
Um, I want to tell everyone on the call that if you're interested in or um, like what we're doing here with the project, I encourage you to visit our website at regproject.org. I mentioned it before. It's regproject.org. There we share everything associated with the RTP, including our fourth branch video series, papers, and podcasts. You can sign up to receive early access to our content, and by doing so, you'll also receive exclusive materials available only to our subscribers. Lastly, on our website, you can submit to us a story of when you, a friend, a family member, a client, or anyone you know has been affected by regulation. And like Eric, we might feature that story in our programming. Um, I want to make one last call to the floor. If anyone is interested in asking a question of Mike or Eric on this topic, all you need to do is enter star, then the pound button. I'm going to ask uh, one final question, and uh, this, I guess, goes to both callers. Um, there's there was some talk of Mark Cuban and, and issues with him. What? How is Mark Cuban uh, associated with this story? I assume that's a question to Eric. Yes. Um, well, the answer is simple because one of the things that we've tried to do, myself and my lawyer Thomas Showbloom, who, by the way, I'm going to put in a plug for Thomas Showbloom. He has been a constant and consistent warrior for these rights for a lot of people for a long time. So let me plug, let me just say thank you again to Mr. Tom Shelburne. The the answer to your question is one of the things that we did to try to get to the bottom. You have to understand we don't still have the real answer to the question, why did this happen to me? Really. This is one of the smallest cases in the history of the SEC Enforcement Division. Yet I've been under investigation three separate times over a seven-year period. What's really going on here? So one of the things we did was we made a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, which you know any defense, any defense lawyer, certainly one that dabbles in civil rights or due process or equal protection, is going to be very, very well familiar with. So are the journalists. Um, but anyway, this this basically is a formal request to a government agency for transparency. Please give us access to your files about me. What do your files about me say? You know, and even acknowledging the fact that there's going to be redaction and assertions of privilege and all the rest, the SEC responded to us by saying, we will honor your FOIA request. However, it will cost you a minimum of $150,000 in fees and we don't think we can get started for three years. They also then alleged, they also then made reference to 309 boxes of documents, which if you do the math based on other things they said, comes up to nearly 1 million documents. So they basically said, we have collected a million documents on you, Wanger, the $2,200 man, and it's going to cost you between one and two full-time salaries at the SEC for you to get access to those files. And we're not even going to be able to get started for three years. Well, when I blogged that, Mark Cuban, who, you know, as you know, has been, you know, he was, you know, he was probably one of the most high-profile people, you know, in the history of all this stuff to push back. And once again, I, 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 I you know, I've got no interest in deciding who is guilty or who is innocent or whatever, all I can tell you is that no matter what you did, you deserve a fair hearing and you deserve a fair trial. But when Mark Cuban, when somebody of that public um, celebrity retweets you, and he retweeted one of my tweets, I think more than 6,000 people hit my website. And between, you know, between Mark Cuban retweeting the mockery that they made of our FOIA request and Gretchen Morganson publishing that article about me, about us, you know, a month ago in the business section of the New York Times, you know, this story is starting to get out. And at some point I need to get to the answer, which is why did they do this to me really? And just to add just some background on, on Mark Cuban, I mentioned earlier, he was the subject of, of an action that was filed by the SEC in federal court. This was before um, the controversy about administrative law judges, and he went to trial. He's one of the people who had the, the means to go to trial and to, to fight the SEC. And at the end of the day, he was acquitted. The jury deliberated for about three hours and came back and said that we find that he's not liable for any of the claims that the SEC had made against him. And 
for someone like him, he, he took his experience and rather than say, well, look, this only applied to me and I'm not going to worry about anybody else, he worried about the process. And I think as in the years that have followed the acquittal, he has made an effort to be a reformer on this issue, realizing that if it can happen to him, it can happen to just about anybody. And I think that's why you see his name pop up. And I think that's why, you know, I think he has a special sense of, of outrage when, when hearing what happened to Eric. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks, Eric. Um, I think we're going to wrap up here. We're coming to the close of our uh, hour, uh, hour-long telephone call here. Uh, so seeing no extra questions, I'm going to ask Mike and, and Eric to deliver maybe 30 seconds or a minute of closing remarks, if you have any, um, and, and then I'll close out the call. Uh, Mike, Eric, do you have any final thoughts? Th- this is Mike. Go ahead, Eric. Why don't I give Mike the last word, because he's very coherent. Why don't I throw in something a little bit anecdotal, and then we'll give Mike the absolute last word. Does that work? No, I think that worked fine. Okay, the what I was just going to say is only con- Congress made this mess and only Congress can fix this mess. If you actually look at the Administrative Procedure Act, you actually look at you know the federal judiciary, which is a creature of Congress, as surprising as that might be, you actually look at the funding of the administrative agencies and then all of the shenanigans that go on within these administrative agencies and you know, most of the people that rode, ran the SEC that took me down aren't even there anymore. Most of them are making more than a million dollars a year now defending people who did things much worse than anything I was ever accused of. But having said that, you just need to ask yourself, do you want to live in a country where you can be dragged in front of a judge who gets paid by the same commission that pays the prosecutor who gets to decide what evidence and what witnesses you're allowed to bring in, what evidence is wit- witnesses you're allowed to see and talk to. And if you don't like their decision, you have to go to their boss for the appeal. That is the system we have right now. You just need to ask yourself, is that a good system? Is that the system you want as an American? And I would just add to that, I, I think that the issue here is a structural one. I mean, the, the personalities, people come and they go. Um, you know, the head of the SEC changes periodically as to the director of enforcement and, and the administrative lodges often stay for a long time, but they also turn over too. And so this isn't really a critique of any one person. It's really a question of what level of fairness should, should we as citizens hope to see in, in an administrative process and which do we think is really, you know, even though it may not be a strict constitutional issue, when is it really fair for someone to have more procedural rights? Um, than than currently they might get. And I I think this is a a very difficult conversation and one that people should really think about because, you know, what happens to to, to the least of us happens to all of us. And, you know, it it may seem like unimportant if it's happening to other people, but it eventually could happen to someone that you really appreciate. And that's why it's important to give it deep thought now before, you know, before hopefully any of these potential problems with the system really sort of get out of hand. And I think we should all be trying for the most just system, regardless of what political party you know, you're affiliated with or regardless of which candidate you support. Terrific. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks, Eric. Um, I want to announce again that if you're interested in what we're doing, you can go to regproject.org, uh, where we post everything that we're doing with the RTP. Uh, if you like the Regulatory Transparency Project, want to keep up to date on it, you can also like us on Facebook, we're also on LinkedIn, so you can you can connect with us there. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at FedSockRTP. We also welcome any feedback you have for us, good, bad, and different, uh, by email at hello at regproject.org. That's H-E-L-L-O at regproject.org. On behalf of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, I want to thank Mike. I want to thank Eric for your remarks and for our audience for joining us. We hope to see you all again on Thursday, July 13th at 1230, when we'll be discussing Flight Now for our next installment of Free Lunch. So long. On behalf of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to Free Lunch. As always, you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play to get new episodes of Free Lunch when they're published. Also, visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. 
There, we regularly upload content in addition to our podcasts, such as short videos and papers. And you can join the discussion by sharing your story of how regulation has personally affected you. Until next time, remember, there's no such thing as a free lunch. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 